a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. You're listening to a Zero Limits podcast brought to you by Ironled Cartel for all your fitness and streetwear apparel and health supplements. Hosted by Australian veterans, Matt and Shane, we're here to give you the motivation for you to complete any goal you set your mind to. On these podcasts, we're going to be speaking to high-charging people with the Zero Limit mindset that never say no. Let's go. All right, listeners, on uh, today's Zero Limits podcast, I'm doing a little bit something different today. Shane's not here, obviously. I'm here in uh, the United States currently working. And during this time while I'm over here, I've actually got to, uh, had the chance to catch up with a couple of our podcast guests and reach out to a few new ones and uh, get one on. Today, I'm actually in Washington, D.C. We're just outside uh, the Arlington uh, War Memorial. While we're here, I've uh, invited one of my friends. Uh, we, we started speaking on Instagram a couple of years ago. He is a U.S. Navy veteran and uh, also runs uh, Mackay uh, Metalworks, and essentially he just makes knives. About a year ago, he made me a knife, the Waltzing Matilda. It's, it, it, you, yeah. I'll, I'll get some photos up on the uh, podcast and on the Instagram, sorry. It's uh, an absolute ripper, and I'm, I'm pumped to actually uh, use it. Anyway, I'll say today's uh, guest is uh, George Corn. He, again, was a U.S. Navy uh, veteran, spent uh, roughly 20 years in the service, and now he's out making knives. So uh, welcome to the show, mate. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's, this is going to be super rad. It's my first podcast, so what is it? Let's hope it's a banger. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you say that in, a, in America, let's hope it's a banger, then I don't know. Yeah, I, don't think it would, I don't think it translates over the same way at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really like, um, yeah, okay, cool, dude. <laughs> yeah, right. No, awesome, man. Well, let's, um, I guess let's just start straight from the start. Uh, where'd you grow up and uh, how was uh, schooling, et cetera? Okay, so I was born on Naval Air Station Whidbey Island in the PNW in Washington State, but two years into my life, parents moved to Southern California because my dad was in the Navy, so he was restationed down in SoCal, and just regular uh, primary, secondary school, high school stuff. In high school, my mom, who had remarried by then, um, was stationed in 29 Palms, which is a Marine Corps base, because she was a corpsman. So I spent the last five, that's three years of high school, and two years that I did of college in the desert where Marines trained to do air ground combat, aggressive air ground combat. Yeah, right. So my high school was like here, five miles over there, they're blowing things up. <laughs> How did you do at school? Were you uh, I academically or sports? Academically, C plus, C plus students. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, you know, I just, just I fighting, there. yeah. Yeah, I was just there. Um, 
Sports uh, did shot put and discus for the track team and because I needed to find something to do in the spring. Played football because my stepdad was a big sports nut and I wanted to have something to like relate to him with because I really wasn't into team sports, but I played football, so I was the starting center on my football team. Yeah, right. Something who hikes the ball to quarterback. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, tried out for the baseball team, got cut from the baseball team, so I didn't play baseball. That was about it for high school. Yeah. That's yeah. all right. So, and then you completed high school, completed it? Completed that, went to college, decided I wanted to be a, an environmental engineer. So I was taking <laughs> classes for that. I'm like, oh, I'm going to save the environment. It's going to be super cool. <laughs> I also want to be a comic book artist. And my parents were like, you cannot make a living being a comic book artist, but it's cute that you draw. Yeah. Um, <laughs> keep going to school. Two years into that, they were like, hey, where have you been all weekend? I go, hanging out with my friends, doing stuff in Joshua Tree because it was right around the corner from yeah, where we check. lived, hiking. And they're like... This isn't a hotel or revolving door, so like you need to tell us everything you're doing. And I was like, all right, I'm going to move out. How do I move out? I'm going to join the military. So I called an Air Force recruiter first because my parents were in the Navy, and I was mad at them. So I was like, I'm going to be in the Air Force. That guy never called me back. Navy dude called me in like five seconds and was yeah. there like two days later. So started doing all the paperwork for that. He was like, what do you want to be? My dad was like, do something with electronics. I was like, oh, sonar techs are in San Diego, and everything else is in Chicago. And I'm like, I'm going to stay in San Diego after boot camp. So I picked being a sonar tech on a surface ship. Yeah, right. And so, again, going, just going back to you joining the uh, U.S. Navy, the decision for you to do that was based off your parents just being in the forces it, it as just, well? It was, well, it they, was just, it always been, I'd always been a, a Navy brat. Yeah. And it was cool. We lived in, like, just SoCal. So I thought, like, if you were like, hey, I'm going to live here, I get stationed here, like, you stay there forever, misconception of that. Um, yeah, no, I just really liked the Navy, always around the ocean was going to make it my second choice because mostly I was fussy at my folks that day. But like, it ended up being like, hey, we're going to offer you this and an enlistment bonus. I'm like, all right, cool. Then I'll do the Navy. Yeah, right. You said that before. It was $8,000. Yeah. They were like, back then they were hurting for people in 98. They were (laughs) like, hey, if you take this nerd job, we'll give you $8,000 US. I'm like, like all of it? Well, it's going to be taxed, but you'll get it. Do you remember what you spent it on? Oh, man. (laughs) Anybody here is going to say, all right, when... When the money populated into my bank account after it was taxed, it was like $4,800. So I remember freaking out that I'd never seen that much money for my account. <laughs> I went and put $2,000 on my little Hyundai Accent car I had at the bank. So I paid ahead on that. So I'm like, that's smart. Due diligence. Put 800 bucks in savings. And I think the rest, I bought two surfboards, went to a strip club and spent $600. <laughs> and I was 19, so I wasn't drinking. I just yeah, went to a yeah. strip club and spent yeah. 600 bucks. And um, yeah, and the rest of it. Bur- bur- California burritos, yeah. gas money, yeah. insurance, like just doing normal kid stuff. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> strip club, though, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Typically. hundred percent like... Government money straight into strip clubs. <laughs> yeah, very much. Yeah. There you go. Good job, George. Wait a, wait a, everyone's going to be proud of me for that. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, you, get, you get in... Uh, how does it... So you obviously you go to a recruitment station. Yeah. Um, you essentially sign up, sign at the dotted line. They do all the physical, medical, and all that type of stuff. Right. They, entry. Uh, you'll come in and they're like, hey, have you ever taken a, the entry, the ASVAB? the test they have to take us to see our aptitude for military jobs. If you didn't take it in high school, they'll have you take one of those. If you do poorly at it, they have you take a remediation like classes on the weekend to help you like, Hey, if math, whatever, and then you retake it and get enough good enough score to get something. If you take it, if you go in there and they're like, okay, your score was this cool. Here are all the jobs that you're open to because this is the level you're at. Yeah. Gotcha. You pick one. If they're open, good. If they're not, you're not. I've heard stories where some recruiters are like, Hey, we'll like, 
wait three months and this will be open because you're a good candidate. Plus they want to fill those higher end jobs. Sometimes they're just like, Hey man, you're, you're who you are and here's what's available and you should leave next week. And some kids bite on that because you don't know any better. It's just how that works. So I took off. I think I had to wait four months because I was born with flat feet. So I had to wait for a waiver, like a medical waiver. Mm. And they did a bunch of like foot doctors looking at my feet and then they're like, yeah, you're good. So I went to the maps, the in-processing station, did all that stuff. And about six months after the process was started, I was on a plane to Great Lakes, Illinois, to start boot camp. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how long? That's the uh, your, uh, Navy boot camp. Yeah. How long is that for? Uh, it's supposed to be, I think it's like two months, two and a half months, if I remember correctly. Mine was almost three because I got there and they had to wait to fill up all the kids that would fill up like a platoon or, you know, the ship of what you're doing. And they're like, uh, yeah, you guys aren't filled up, so you're just going to hang out in sweatpants and march a lot for like <laughs> two weeks straight. And then we started our pre-boot camp days of taking you from being a civilian to doing something military. Yeah. So that took another two weeks. And then I actually started boot camp. Yeah, so it was about three months. How did you find boot camp? Was it uh, a shock to your system? But I suppose uh, you come from a Navy yeah, family, I mean, so... When I when I started making my rack the first time, I was like, oh, my parents have been having me make my bed like this since I was eight. This is why I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally left one home <laughs> for freedom to voluntarily walk into a type of cage that was basically the same type of home with people who aren't related to me, yeah, which right. I found amusing immediately. Um, but no, like I got to boot camp and one of my buddies who had gone like a year before me from high school was like, Hey, if they say you want to be in a 900 division, say yes. And I go, what's that? He goes, you do the performances at the boot camp graduations and it's a lot more fun. Your boot camp experience is different. And I'm like, Oh, well that's cool. And I've done ROTC stuff in high school, so I knew how to, like, twirl a rifle and march already and do stuff. So I'm like, man, I wonder what they're going to have me do. I raised my hand for it, went, did a little interview, a little practice, and I was on the rifle team for all the graduations for three sections of boot camp ahead of us before I graduated. Yeah. So I got to do some traveling towards the end of boot camp for me every week. We did some graduations in downtown Chicago in front of the Big Fountain, and I became a really good twirler of rifles. Like to this day, I can still do it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So the performance rifle. Yeah, I think when I've seen that uh, on Major Pain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like that. With <laughs> less, uh, less flair, a lot more rigidity to the, what they had us doing. But yeah, basically the same thing. So um, once you finish your time at basic training, then you're shipped off to shipped off to where your A school or in whatever schools you have. All of mine were in Point Loma, California. So I got shipped off, and because I volunteered to have your uh, preliminary school for my job plus a secondary school that makes you a little more advanced like you become a technician on something not yeah. just an operator I was there for 18 months so right out of boot camp 18 months Point Loma San Diego school learning things about subs and the equipment to go look for them and that's just a Monday Monday to Friday Monday to Friday duty some, day you have your duty weekends, days yeah. on the weekends if, you're, so you had if you're a chowder and you don't do good in school you have yeah. like extra study on the weekend so like still had the military like we have a hold on you yeah <laughs> we're not just gonna let you loose with your paycheck <laughs> in san diego immediately so during that uh whole 18 months you're basically just learning your trade etc yeah there was a couple like i had about eight different schools so it was like two months of this school then three months then three weeks and two weeks and a month then That's nine a, months of the yeah t- yeah and that that essentially give, gives you a trade afterwards right right for for us i guess the way our military our military is broken up in on the ships and do Every single job people do, like you have the sonar techs, the gunner's mates, everybody's got a job. And then in other navies, I've heard they have like you're either uh, like a electrician, scientific person, or an engineering person. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so like for us, it's like, hey, you're over there doing acoustics and warfare stuff. So you're in, you know, the weapons department. So you're part of all that stuff. So like I hung out with gunner's mates and torpedo men and stuff, but I also got to like go work in the armory and help with other stuff. So it was fun. I got to be around guns, which was really cool. So just give us a quick rundown on, you know, actually what a sonar tech is. 
Sonar tech for the service fleet, you'll go and you'll sit in a room on the ship and use acoustic equipment to look for other submarines from other countries and monitor the water, depending on what your mission is and what you're going out to do or training. And then you have to memorize a lot of stuff because a lot of our material is like, you can't take it home and study it. You have to do it in the schoolhouse, gets put away, secret stuff. So it's like, you just memorize a lot of stuff. Yeah, And then you crunch raw data you receive off instruments and you're like, one, two, three. Okay, I think that's this. I think that's this. So that means those two things are there. It's this type of sub from this country because we're in this place. That kind of stuff. It, yeah, it was nerdy. Super brainy, super nerdy. Doesn't look like what I'd wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, but I got super okay at it as an operator. And then when I was later on a supervisor, I made myself get better at it. So I would be a good supervisor for my guys. Because mm. if, I, if I was crap at it, no one would believe my dudes and what we were doing. And then that would just be really bad for them. Yeah, so gotcha. I had to be good at it yeah. once I became a boss. So for the first essentially two years of your U.S. Navy career, you're not on, not even on a boat. You just yeah, just just because of how just the route I school. went. Yeah, just school. Yeah, right. So when did you get your first posting to a boat, and what what boat was it? It was July of '99 is when I was getting my orders because I was finishing up school, and they gave me the USS Cole DDG 67 out of Norfolk, Virginia, and I reported there in October of '99. Yeah, for you know, for the listeners out there, USS Cole. Um, we'll dig a little bit deeper into that one later, but it did. We was involved in uh, a terrorist incident, yep. which uh, you know changed the course of yeah, a lot of lives, the government, the world. Yeah, changed changed a lot. Me personally, a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So we'll touch on that one. Definitely yeah. expand on that one later. I'm I'm, I'm pumped to hear because you know, again in Australia, you don't really get to see too much, and you know, it was twenty. One years ago, too, so yeah. a very long time ago. Um, so you spent a bit of time on the USS Cole. Uh, how, how, how did you define your first time on a ship and living on a ship? It was actually the first month was really, it was rad because I was in Norfolk and they said, okay, your ship's out to sea, so we'll put you in the temporary personnel unit, TPU, which is just hang around, body locker of people to do work on base waiting mm. for your ship to come back. Two days into that, they're like, hey, we've got a port call from your ship. So they ported. They said, just fly you out. I'm like, okay, cool. I get to fly on a plane to my boat, and it's not in America. I'm like, wait, I, they're not on deployment, right? They're like, no, they're in the Caribbean. They're doing workouts, but they ported in a Caribbean. So it was the British island of Tortola. Yeah, right. So I'm like, okay, that's cool. Pulled in, flew into Puerto Rico, walked through the Puerto Rico airport. This is back when we still kind of had a base there. So that was neat. I was like, I've never been to Puerto Rico. So I got to go to Puerto Rico for five minutes, <laughs> wait three hours for a plane. Then I got to the island. I showed up. My bags are missing. So that's super funny. Got all my uniforms, everything's in there. Yeah. Uh, get on the boat. They're like, okay, get on the get on the ferry launch. Go over to the boat. Check in. Hey, everyone's on Liberty for the next week. So you're on Liberty. You're not part of anything. Check out with the Liberty buddy. So you have somebody and come back unless you have a place to stay and call us. I'm like, oh, okay. Like from going from school where they're like, hey, here's your liberty. Here's the time you have to be here, all the musters to like, hey, you're an adult. You're in this country. The drinking age is like 12. (laughs) There's rum is cheaper than water. Yeah. Come back on time. Don't miss the ship leaving. I'm like, right. This is, are you guys joking? Are you setting me up trying to get me in trouble? No, it was a good time. Worst thing that happened that whole port visit, our lead enlisted guy, our command master chief, met me at the pier when I was waiting for something. He goes, hey, what's with the earrings? I go, I'm on Liberty and I'm new to the boat. And he goes, yeah, we don't do that here. So the guys can't wear earrings. That'd be a West Coast thing, but not here. I'm like, okay. So I had to take my earrings out. But he was super cool about it. Uh, Drank some rum, listened to some music. 
went surfing on the far side of the island by Half Moon Bay because the swell came in. So those waves, I rented a surfboard and surfed. Yeah. And everyone's yeah. like, oh, so you're the new guy and you're a surfer. So that was, that was kind of cool for five minutes. And yeah, it was another two weeks underway. I got really, really seasick. So I learned that like I get yeah, seasick in big yeah. seas. So I have to take some Dramamine before we go into weight. Yeah. Doing that my whole career. Don't even care. People make fun of me about it. I'm like, hey, that's how I get work done. Whatever. But um, yeah, we got to shoot M14s do gun shoots we shot a five inch shoot we shot a fake torpedo um put out all the acoustic instruments out the back of the boat and saw how all that worked stood watch 24 hours a day like different times of the day which was horrible because i was like oh i'm not used to being up in the middle of the night like this, this is kind of weird yeah um met all the different personalities on the boat because i believe the navy back then was a couple of years a handful of years into having women on ships on combatant ships yep so I now, with my frame of reference being an adult now, like I can see where there was growing pains on the boat that I didn't really notice them as that. I was just like, why are these people having a problem? What's the deal? Because they were like getting into each other, people just yelling at each other. Tight space too. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, and you're tight. You're, yeah. I mean, guys are already like in a locker room. Guys yeah. get into it. Now yeah. you have a boiler room at sea. People live in it. And now you're men and women living together. Saw a lot of hard ass dudes and chicks working hard. And I saw a lot of people who just like, they really pain the ass to work with men or women they're just like wow like you're not someone i want to work with yeah it doesn't matter if you're a guy or girl you're just someone i really don't want to work with would you say like just quickly just to touch on it you know especially with the u.s military i guess a lot of people here Mm -hmm. are sometimes only left to join the defense for you know the military so you'd get a lot of those bottom feeders that come in and just it's just a job for them that's it yeah i would say like whatever words anyone tries to use with it like my kid was doing his uh, summer rotation for his college stuff. And one of the commanders they talked to was like, Hey, it's, it's hard to be an officer in the Navy. Cause you, it's a test of leadership. Cause you're getting a lot of people who like, this is their last, their last attempt at something or their, their only Avenue to better themselves. And I, I kind of understand what that guy was saying. And what you're saying too, it's like, you're going to get like, you take whatever you get in the military and you're going to have the top echelon on the yeah. ship. You're going to have the middle dudes. Hey, I'm just here to do my four years, but I'm here to work hard because yeah. that's how I grew up. Yeah. And you're going to get people who just showed up and they're like, how can I find ways to do the littlest amount? Cause we're all getting paid the same. Mm. And that kind of, I mean, you're going to get that everywhere. No, and, exactly. And yeah. I've, and I've talked to a lot of people. I'm like, Hey, it's not a gender thing. It's not who you're sleeping with at night or how you make your life when you're away from the boat. It's like, some people are just super fucking lazy. And some people <laughs> yeah. are just super hard chargers and work hard. And I think as leaders, you really got to look for the hard chargers and make sure they don't get abused because it's real easy to lump all the weight on the hard chargers and not take the time to be a good leader and go rustle the bushes and find all yeah, the people yeah. hiding and yeah. the snakes and make them come out in the light and do work. Yeah. So th- that's why you need those good leaders to do that because 100%. I don't need to watch my hard chargers all day. 10 minutes into telling you what to do, I'm like, go do great things. Yeah. And that's like our little goofball thing we say, but I need to go find these guys. I know they're hiding in the bushes everywhere. Like, get out here and come do some work. Yeah. Or at least do this stuff so I can leave this dude alone to do the other big stuff. Yeah. That's how I look at it. Yeah, no, exactly right. Exactly right. So um, so how long did you uh, get posted that shit for? I was on the USS Cole. We were bombed. We all got home a month later. And then I think it was about nine to 10 months later when they started transferring people off the boat because we were just like a body locker of people. So they're like, who are we keeping? Who are we sending away to another boats? They call what we call our detailers. And they said, hey, call your detailer and talk to them. Detailers from my job aren't the nicest dudes and usually super fussy. So to be able to get like in retrospect, two to three choices of a ship, of different ships in in the same place, was a blessing because he yeah. could have just said, no, you're going here. Yeah. So I picked the ship. I said, which ship out of the two you gave me is going on deployment farther down the road? Cause yeah. I just really don't want to go on another deployment right now. Yeah. And he's like, Oh, well the Vela Gulf, it's a CG, a cruiser. So it's a warship, but it's our biggest warship with a cannon on it. 
slash more of a command and control air traffic control type ship. So he sent me to that one. And then you shoot to a couple months later, I'm walking in the ship's in the main P-way by the classroom, everyone's watching some TV in the morning, the news and whatnot before we have to start doing work. And we're about three, three weeks from deployment. And someone's like, oh my God, did you see that really? And there's a difference between, oh my God, did you see that? And oh my God, that, that sound in someone's voice, like something bad happened. I thought someone got hurt in the ship's classroom. Mm. So I would come back in, I'm like, what happened? Is everyone okay? They're like, no, look at the TV. And I'm like, what is this, a movie or something? And then I saw the second plane live hit the tower. And I was like, and I just turned out, walked out of the P-way. I said, we're going to war. I don't know what's going on, but we're going to war. Yeah. And I walked outside and they said, everybody put envelopes together, put all your paperwork, anything important, car keys you might need, label who's supposed to get it, give it to the ombudsman. They're going to take it off the boat and put it somewhere at the base for people. We got to go. And I was thought we were going straight to the Middle East. What happened is we ended up taking our ship and going to outside of New York Harbor to be air defense commander to coordinate things mm. with whoever else was up there. And I believe someone said they had a carrier that went in the harbor as a show of force. And then we had jets flying the whole area in that airspace. So we were outside of New York within a couple of days on my ship, outside the harbor, out at sea a bit, I'm pretty sure. And we sat around for three or four days, maybe five, and then came home. They said, everyone's got like, it's duty section only, get your shit done, talk to your family, do whatever you got to do. And then we're going. And then we went on our deployment. Yeah. So our ship cruised around and we shotgunned the carrier. So if the carrier was doing something, our ship was following them to make sure we were like, they're combatant with them if something happened. Yeah, gotcha. Like, uh, oh, when you, Louis DeGault, you guys were, yeah, those yeah, guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked with them my last, last deployment. We boarded, we did cool stuff with them. Yeah, so yeah, right. we did the same shotgunning thing. Yeah. I hung out with them. Um, yeah, we did that. We boarded some ships because we had some BBSS happen. And during the course of that, this is on Google actually, which I thought was pretty interesting. The Motor Vessel Lena was a suspected smuggler. And we had a lead at with us from the Coast Guard. So we went over there to board them. They tried to run from us. Then they tried to ram us. I've never seen a Navy ship. Like I'm on the Navy ship on the helo deck on a cruiser. And it's going full reverse with water coming off yeah, right. over the back five inch gun. Yeah. Because we're like, nope, nope, you're not going to hit us. But we're, we're not going to like sink them. We're like still trying to maneuver around. Then they start having problems. So I think they were trying to disable their, their boat or scuttle it. We went over there and they had lashed their bridge door shut, but with lashing, not wood. And our, or we thought that it was welded because they wouldn't open. And when the guys used the peck you to open it, they yep. set all that wood and lashing on fire and it set the ship on fire. So we had to send rescue and assistance over there to save the ship we boarded to then detain the entire crew and hold on to them for three days, drifting in the water next to us. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was my night. So for me, that never employment started out with like, basically, <laughs> there are no rules. Just keep your shirt on. <laughs> and... It was privateer work. Like, these guys are smugglers. We stopped them. They all got to be apprehended and go to jail. We we had to, like, search the whole ship. They locked a bunch of doors. I got to, like, I actually got to kick open, like, over 60 doors on this boat with my buddy, which was super fun because I, yeah. I thought I was going to get in trouble for that. Yeah. Yeah, and we saved the boat, and that was pretty much the highlight of that whole deployment because then it kind of just leveled off from there that our ship sat around waiting to shoot missiles if they needed it. So we were yeah. always, like, in a position but never got called to do it yeah gotcha so that but it was like a better part of seven and a half months almost eight months i thought everyone was like we're gonna be out here forever till yeah. it's done i'm yeah. like no it, it, it rotated normally ish yeah so just like um to speak about it um we had a, a podcast with an mp uh a few episodes ago sean Ambrose, and um it seems to be a bit of a common train uh common theme within the u.s military you know he was an mp but they got re-rolled to get out and fight the Taliban. They literally rolled out and 
turned into an infantry force. Essentially, you, you joined up as a um, sonar technician and then you started getting into the boarding parties. You know, you, yeah. um, it's just like when you're on a ship, depending on what you're doing or like who catches you in a peeway, like the gunner's mate chief on the coal noticed me in the forward pallet staging area on the ship, always doing pull-ups and working out at night. And he would come over and one day he was like, well, oh, you trying to go to Buzz, trying to be a SEAL? I was like, no. And he's like, we work out a lot. I go, eh, I like surfing and we're here and I have time and I'm pretty much just discovered coffee and I'm 19, so I'm working yeah, out. Yeah. And he's like, well, you're going to do VBSS. And I'm like, what's that? He goes, no, just meet me here tomorrow this time. You're going to be on this team. I'm putting you on this team because I need guys. So it was just him walking by me like, you're young, you're stupid because you can do exactly what I say. Yeah. And you like doing pull-ups. Yeah. Come here. <laughs> and I'm, he was lacking bodies. Yeah. And for the listeners, VBSS stands for? Ver- visit, board, search, and seizure. So it's the fleet Navy boarding teams. Yeah, gotcha. So very different in scale and scope from like the uh, the Marines when they do the Mew guys and they yeah. do VBSS. Yeah. Way different than when the SEALs do it. it yeah, is, of course. It, yeah. it has components yeah. of all those missions. And they did send us to a non-compliant boarding school. So we are category four shooters, which lets you walk around and shoot a gun with other people for military speak. Yeah. But like- we would have to train more at nauseum with more people to be able to run around with like guys who do it all the time. Yeah, of course. But for the Navy team, it's like the equivalent of an at sea, like you're patrolling and you're a police officer doing like vehicle stops and checking on people. You have the capability to defend yourself to leave if something really bad happens, but I'm not an aggressing force where I'm aggressing onto something. Yeah, gotcha. That's the difference. Yeah. So essentially, you know, it, it, let's just, you know, you tie a 20 year service, you, you were a sonar technician, but majority yeah. of the time you were literally. Boarding ships. Boarding ships. Boarding which ships, is, helping yeah. people, climbing up on boats, being out at sea in a small boat, saying hi to people, doing flag verifications, checking cargo. Yeah, all yeah, the time. Like, which, is, which is cool. It was great because it was eight hours every day, 10 hours a day off the boat. Um, you just get to hang out and do cool guy water G.I. Joe stuff. But for me, I was a kid who like grew up watching G.I. Joe and Transformers, so I'm like, this is... I'm really enjoying my Navy time right now. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, right. I kind of liked being on deployments more than I liked being home because you're home, you're just, just doing sonar work and painting doors and making sure guys aren't doing goofy things and doing their paperwork correctly. Yeah. So, what age were you, uh, 2001? Oh, in 2001 when the... Oh, when, when September the, 11, yep. I would have been just this side of 21. Yeah. Wow. No, just on the other side of 21. No idea in the world and... No, like I was 19 when the coal was bombed. Yeah. I turned 20 that November in Nebraska, hanging out with my buddy, 21. No, so I was 20, 21. And yeah, just this other side of 21. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let, I guess we just, let's, let's get onto the USS Coal, back to, back to the coal. So in uh, the date, uh, 12th of October, the year 2000, Yeah. it was uh, attacked by um, Al-Qaeda. Yep. And um, it was a suicide bombing attempt. Right. Well, I shouldn't they, say attempt, they, it they, happened. Yeah, yeah, they put, I think it was, uh, I don't remember, 11,000 pounds. It was pounds. 11,000 pounds. It was a lot. And what I'd heard before, and I don't remember if this is like the accurate thing, someone had said they had had another Navy ship port there like a month later or a month before, and their first attempt at doing that, that ship had sunk because they overburdened it with too much explosive. So What what were they using? Was it a, just a little... TNT. TNT no, what, what the, the vessel. Oh, um, when, we a, pull into, when we pull into port, they have these... Every sometimes there's little trash barges, yeah, Yeah. little tom tom boats, whatever. We call them tugboats. Yeah, so whatever they had for getting the trash, husbandry boats, whatever they just mirrored what was ever going on. And back then, force protection isn't what it's like now, where you have like boats and standoff and perimeters and every other thing under the sun and warning shots. So it was like, okay, here comes another trash boat. Yeah, like it was like literally nobody's nobody was prepared for that because no one thought that was going to happen ever. That's that's yeah, yeah, that's how it is, mate. That's you know, yeah. I like I was like, hey, what are we doing? We moored up. 
Everyone's like, I'm going to go eat chow. I'm like, dude, it's hot. I grabbed two, two liters of water and I went down to my space on the aft end of the boat underneath the main deck. And I'm like, I'm going to take a nap during lunch because it's just hot. I just want to walk. My uh, work center supervisor came to talk to me, with a couple other people I worked with. And then when the ship was hit, we bounced around the space as if like, if you're in a car without your seatbelt on, you bounce around and you see yeah. those videos. That's exactly what I was like. That was just like hitting something with a car, but we're in the destroyer. What just happened? Like what's going on? Got up. All I remember hearing is general quarters, general court, and then whatever announcing system was saying what I thought I heard was announcing system just petered out in my ears like, okay, nothing's working, but I need to go back to where I just came from because that's where my general quarter spot is. Like, yeah. Shit hits the fan. Yep. So I'm like, all right, I'm here. Close the door, did all the fittings, did all the CBR stuff I'm supposed to do. And I'm just like, I sat there for two minutes by myself, eerily quiet. And I'm like, this is redundant because I'm in a torpedo countermeasure space for general quarters. There's nothing to do here because there's no torpedoes to countermeasure. We're like, we're moored to something. I'm not out at sea. So like, all right. So here's this one time in my life. I'm hundred percent making this little command decision by myself. I'm going to leave this space and figure out what's going on. And when I did, I saw people being brought out of the aft engineering space hurt. One of the guys I knew, Nemeth, big cut on the side of his face. And I was like, shit. And everyone's like, what happened? And I'm like, I don't know. He's cut. Let's get him into laundry, put him down on the sheets over there, rip this up, put that on his face. Where's the key to aft medical? Nobody knows. I got a big ax from my space. We used to break up the equipment. If something happens, you have to destroy yep, equipment. Yep. And I started like hitting the door for medical to open that. And then a couple gunner's mates came down and needed to get ammo out of the aft ammo locker. And I was like, okay, I've seen blood and whatever for a couple of minutes now. This is starting to really freak me the fuck out because I've never seen this before. Do you guys need help carrying ammo? Yeah. So I'm like, do you got them? Do you got this? Oh, there's baby doc, our youngest doc on the boat, Corman. She came by the door. I'm like, you got this? You got everything? Cool. I'm going to go help them take ammo upstairs. She's like, yeah, hon, you go do that. So I just went and started getting ammo and taking it upstairs. Came upstairs out of the flight deck. It looked like every chimney in the world had just belched soot all over the ship. Yeah. It was gross. It was smelled weird. It was eerie. And everybody had guns. That was from like the armory and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I go up there. I just say, hey, what's going on? They're like, oh, your gun quality, your weapons department. Here's an M14. An hour later, someone was like, hey, we got to go get more of this. We got to go get the 50 cals to set up or M60s. Here, hold my shotgun, hold this. I'm going to go get this. I ended up like two shotguns, M14, walking around. The chief gunner's mate came up and said, I got to go get my scope for my rifle. Put all that stuff down next to you. Get on that 60 at the end of the boat. And if anything comes within this area, light it up. I'm like, okay. And that was like the first however many hours of so USS you were the you were the only guys or the only US ship that was on that, at that dock yeah it was like a refueling dolphin so like how we're sitting at a picnic table yeah it's just one of the like something like this sitting in the middle of the harbor and it has all the fuel stuff to it and a little a little bit for people to walk on and scaffolding and you just moor up lash up pipes over fuel you up import yeah gotcha so and it's slower than doing it out at sea so it takes forever yeah and uh, so you all just basically went to the action stations and yeah, yeah, action, yeah. yeah. Oh, I spent I spent six months on a navy sh- couple of navy ships. Yeah, I know that's your guys' version. Yeah. yeah, so it was action stations, but like my action station was like an underway anti torpedo action station. So I was yeah. like, this is stupid. This is like, well, I'm not. I'm, I'm glad like the way our captain trained us because we all were super not into our captain. He was like GQs twice a day. We're going on deployment. You're you're a brand new baby crew like. 20% of you are old hat. The rest of you are all brand new people who checked on the boat. And we're all like, man, dude, he's just like killing. Like, we got it. We know how to do this. To this day, I will say this. That was amazing. That like, you could have blindfolded me and kicked me in the stomach and rolled me down some you stairs. Exactly and when, when they said general quarters, I knew where to go, what to That's do. It. And that was it. So I was like, to this day, I'll still, I'll still say that guy, the guy had it yeah. tight. He knew what was going on. Like my, uh, he is now my 
my kid's ethics teacher yeah. at college. So it's super cool. I'm like, oh, yeah. is he? Yeah. So, yeah. I'm like, yeah. so you're going to learn some stuff. You're good. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so that happened. Uh, so the bombing happened around 11, 18 local time. And um, it says here 17 uh, killed. Yeah. Or well, 15 plus the two attackers, or was it 17 plus the two attackers? No, 17. 17, yep. Yeah. And, and 30, 39, 30, 39 or 37 injured. Yeah, it's 37 yeah. injured, but yeah. I there's always, there was always a different number because people were like, well, is this an injury? Was that? And like, there's a lot of people who had to get taken off the boat. Yeah. Where, where did, like, I'm just looking at a couple of pictures now on uh, Google. Oh, the blast hole looks massive. I think there was 10,000 or 11,000 tons of seawater got in the ship. Yeah, right. And it was right center line. So, like, where a lot of people I knew got hurt and killed that I knew personally was up where you have the chief's mess is right behind the ship's galley where they cook and then the mess line. Yeah. So that would be the, the top of the circle. And then it's pushed into all the engineering, the oil lab and different stuff. So like one of the officers I knew, Mr. Triplett, he was the oil king. He was in charge of oil stuff. He died in the oil lab because yeah. he was in there middle of the day. Like, Hey, check Hey guys, how's it going? Checking on work. Just normal, normal thing. stuff. Yeah. Um, one of the cooks I knew, Santiago, he was obviously cooking one of the, uh, deck seamen, you know, one of the young ladies who works in the deck department, she was, um, doing her mess duty. So she was in the galley and she died there. Another young lady who had just checked on, who was a brand new cook, she died because she was in there. So it was like, there's a lot of people, like if there's anything to do with like lunchtime or anywhere in those engineering things, that was it. Yeah. You're, you're not really, there was, can't hope <laughs> yeah so, and it's stuff you didn't know hey it's stuff you didn't know sorry uh just for the listeners he's got his dog here as well we're just out as i said we're outside arlington and uh just in a near a baseball park and uh, he's got his um dog out here and yeah beautiful dog yeah like it it's they said c4 explosive molded into a shape charged yeah. So they molded like, it in the front of the hull of this boat just to yeah to punch in punch and in straight in like brand new in the navy like I didn't know what any of that stuff was I was I was not keen on anything that I've learned henceforth from special warfare stuff that from friends or just me being inquisitive and reading stuff I was just like I'm in the navy and I wear dungarees and our ship just got bombed yeah and then later on when they were trying people were like hey do you guys want to know what happened or FBI investigators put out a thing that hey we got the investigation report do you guys want to have this and I'm just like. I have no idea what any of this means. Later on, like, as victims of this crime, and they had certain people they'd apprehended that were at Gitmo, yeah. and they have their um, their court dates. Yeah. To this day, I still get letters. Do you want to come to Gitmo and watch the court proceedings for no, this what? guy's appeal? Like, there's still two dudes or a couple dudes there with appeals, and I'm just like, I don't think I want to, because I really want to just beat the crap out of those guys. Yeah. Like, it's probably not a good thing. I'm probably like, okay, well, thanks for the offer. I'm glad yeah. you guys are still judiciously yeah. doing, like, law stuff with them. That's crazy. So, so you guys get bombed at about, uh, as I said, eleven eighteen approximately. Yeah. Um, what, what was? It was there a response from the U.S. military? Did you guys have an extra ship come out there? And there was um, the Tarawa was an amphib. So the Tarawa got out there when they got out there. I don't remember the Camden, which was a giant. I forgot what kind of ship that was, but it was like a big carrier of supplies and everybody else. Um, a frigate. I don't remember the name of that one. The yeah. Donald. The Donald Cook was a DDG. They got out there. And within 24 hours, whatever their time frame was, a Marine Corps fast company, which are, those are the guys that like if stuff hits the fan, they show up and they're there like immediate security and will literally, if it's going to hurt an American, they'll just take care of it quickly. Yeah. So they were there and good to go and fast company Marines. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. And then later on there was elements of special warfare that showed up that were wherever, whatever ship they were on doing their, their float, they got there and they set up boat security 
and at night we had dudes of that caliber on the ship on overwatch on the mast and on the main deck doing whatever they were doing yeah yeah so we were like within 24 hours we had like it started to escalate we had different levels of security going on that was besides the ship security yeah they said look reading here they said the first ship was hms uh, marlborough which is a british okay. ship yeah, yeah. is uh, a frigate and it turned out to be a medical and uh, damage control team on yeah. board so they come in and started doing all the yeah and then the we had pa- divers that, up. yeah we had divers that came in to do uh i mean was it i forgot it was called body to find the bodies and, yeah. and to do damage assessments yeah. underwater because those were our divers and he some i think it was a couple of eod people yeah it was just a lot of things i didn't know what existed in the navy well, i was just like you're only 20 20 yeah. years old yeah i was just like all i remember for most of that was, was walking around one night on watch and a guy was sitting down he was like when he stood up he was like six six and i was like oh you're tall and he had a handgun that was like the size of my forearm. And I was like, what is that? And he goes, oh, this is HK Mark 23, blah, blah, blah. And I've always wanted that gun. And when I retired, I bought one. So yeah. that, that's really was my biggest thing is that guy and another dude who looked like he had a guitar case. And he said, hey, where's the mast at? And I said, why? He goes, well, I have to go up there to be like the Overwatch. I'm a sniper. I'm like, oh, I'll take you up there. Because that sounded really cool and interesting. Also, I was like, what is that? And then when he opened the box, I was like, oh, that's what that is. And it was one of those... I can only assume from what I little knowledge I had, it reminded me of the big gun from the Navy SEALs movie, Charlie Sheen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was some type of skeletonized Barrett, it looked like yeah, to me. And I was just yeah. like, wow. And I took him up there. He was up there every night. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how long were you um, How long were you guys on the ship for until you got moved? Give or take, I would say, we periodically, they would take a group of people off the boat for a day, for an overnight. And you go to one of the ships that was outside the harbor helping us out go take a shower, get cleaned up, just take a nap, watch TV, do whatever you want, decompress, because we all were staying on the boat. Yeah. Um, when they got everybody off the boat and the ship was on the Blue Marlin and came up that, I think it was a Denmark, a ship from Denmark that like is a big salvage ship. Yeah, the Blue Marlin. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think I was one of the last six people to come off of the boat with my buddy Kyle, because we were, when the ship was being tugged out to sea and then up on the Blue Marlin, we were on the forward 50 cal mount for security, Kyle and myself. So at the end of the night, when that came up and it was nighttime, there's dudes down there pack hitting the blocks and make sure everything was set we came down saw the hole said hi to some people and then got on a boat to go to the tarawa yeah so i was like i think it was like six or seven of the last actual crew and then there was other people from the navy who were going to be on the blue marlin yeah who their job was to patrol the ship on the transit to just check readings for gross stuff and like a couple docks we knew were checking for to make sure there was weird fumes and things that would hurt people and airing out spaces and stuff like that yeah gotcha yeah um that was like a whole day process too. I was surprised. I thought it was going to take a couple of days. It was like, we left in the morning, we were tugged out to sea. And then we got to a certain point where the blue Marlin came and we were just sitting there and I was like, all right, these guys are like maneuvering. They're like wedging us in the middle of the two things. Yeah. They're kind of doing one of these things. Man, that's like, pretty hectic. Look, just the yeah. picture of the blue Marlin. Well, when I realized what was hectic. going on, I was like, that's technology. If, like, we're right on top of this. What yeah. It, what if it tips? If oh, so you were, I was on the ship the whole time until <laughs> it came up. At night, we came, we walked down a bunch of stairs and we're like, I'm underneath the ship. There's the hole. There's fish flopping on the deck. And I'm like, no way. Yeah. And I'm like, what if the first thing I said is, what if this thing tipped? And everyone's like, ah, no, it's not going to do that. And I'm like, all right. Okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you yeah. do this all the time every Friday. What's going on? Yeah. Right. So from there, um, where does that ship go back to the U.S.? Yeah, I think when they came back, uh, we were on leave and doing a bunch of other stuff. But I think when they got back, um, I think they took it all the way down to Mississippi to that shipyard where they fixed it. I think that's exactly where they took it. They fixed it. Yeah, it's back in service. Oh, is it? It took I took a couple couple of years, but they like cut everything out because 
DDGs are all made compartmentalized yeah, yeah, from yeah, what I was yeah, told and yeah. what I later learned more of. So like if this is a jagged brick that got messed up, I'll just cut that out you know, systematically it. and steal, 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 run the cables and you're back in. Wow. So it's like a ship, but inside it's like conics boxes, like just all these little rooms and you can just put them all back together. It's like a puzzle piece. I'll just say living on the boat for 30 days and like you stand watch, you sleep in your space, you get up, you go down to eat muster. I think uh, when they had to do the captain's calls, every time they found somebody or they found remains and they knew who it was and we found out like another person. So I spent 30 days on it before it got picked up on the Yeah, island. we were there for 30 days. In oh, the shit. End, like connected to the, connected to the refueling dolphin. Like 30, give or take a day, but like 30 days, yeah. Yeah, uh, back to it. So um, so you spent about 30 days again before the Marlin picked you guys up, Yeah, raised it up, and I guess during that time you would have had a whole bunch of investigators come on it as well oh the fbi yeah fbi yeah because it's americans who got hurt overseas and that's like their yeah, their right. their their purview to go check that even though it was military yeah because i remember i was on the quarter deck watch no one told me these people were armed and they walked on board and i'm like oh can i see your credentials and can you open up your bags they had fanny packs and they all had their weapons in their fanny packs and i was like uh this person's got a weapon on the quarter deck and no one told me so i was like i'm just an e4 and this lady's got a glock i've got a shotgun what's going on <laughs> and they're like oh they're fbi i'm like oh well thanks a lot for that oh they didn't flop out their badge like oh no they, they were showing movies? everything but no oh, one told me they said hey we're oh, gonna have gotcha. investigators and people coming and that was just like flippantly told me yeah. that on the quarter deck and the quarter deck is like the gangplank and like the brow and like me like standing there in dungarees and like a really dirty t-shirt That's with it, a shotgun yeah. like Okay, sweet. Yeah. But yeah, them and um, uh, NCIS and a bunch of other investigators, like they were crawling all over everything. Yeah. Our biggest job was like if they ask you for something or ask you to take them somewhere, take them immediately. Like you don't ask questions. Right, okay. Just do it. Yeah. yeah, just do it. So you said, that, you know, there was 17 U.S. Navy soldiers, sailors, I should say, killed. So you would have taken, a, you know, a few days to, you know, collect all their remains. And There was a couple of people who from the bombing when they were killed, like immediately found like first day, like wherever they were. So like... One of the guys, they draped a blanket over him, and he was on the main deck. And I knew exactly who he was by the ring on his finger and the shoes he used. He used to wear a certain mm. type of old-school mm. Navy boondocker chug-a-boot things. And I'm like, that guy was the guy who lived in the rack across from me, who showed me how to like live in birthing and not be a gross kid in birthing. Yeah. And he was an older E6. So I'm like, okay, well, I know who that is. When I had to go get some blankets another time out of the helo control hangar when they're doing some triage stuff, um, there's another body in there. And that was a kid that I had checked on the boat with. He was brand new to deck department, wanted to be a photographer's mate, which is all about photography, but he's a really good sailor. Like, I've got to do this deck seaman job. I'm going to do it really good. And I used to have breakfast with him once in a while. Yeah. And then I saw him yeah. and I'm like, oh my God, I know who that is, like immediately. Yeah. So there was onesies, twosies like that. But then other people had been in the course of their duties in the boat when the bombing happened, they found remains and or enough yeah. of them know who it yeah. was. So yeah, there was there was there was a lot of that for a little bit until yeah. it was done. Yeah, and so it took you know a good thirty days before the Marlin picked you up, and then uh, back to the US. Yeah, was there floated. a bit of a like a um, like a debrief from it? Not or was it just then, no? Yeah, we, flew, no. We, we we got together. They got everyone together when we were on the Tarawa. Told us to wear civilian clothes. Pack your dress blues in a backpack. Um, if you didn't have uniforms or they were messed up, you while we were on the Taro, I think we were transiting for four days or five days. They have a big uniform shop on that boat, so they like basically made sure everyone was squared away. Yeah, and they like at least up to your top three ribbons and everything, so you could be presentable in uniform and not be incorrect. And gotten the double rotor, the Chinooks, the double rotors. They took us into Jordan to an airstrip where I guess they have the military lift commands where the big 747s coming in. We wait in the hangar for a little bit, gotten that, flew to Ramstein. We're overnight in Ramstein. 
Um, next morning, got up, went to the base club or whatever, had a buffet breakfast, you know, so we could eat. Got on the plane and then flew into Norfolk and landed in Norfolk at the airstrip on the Norfolk base. And they basically pop in circumstance, hello, thank yous, important people were there and all our families were. And then they, we pretty much just found our families and walked away. Yeah, right. Yeah. We literally just, there was like, it was like, hey, you guys are all on, um, I think we were, they were like, come back on Monday or Tuesday and we're going to process everyone who's going on um, emergency, or I'm sorry, what was it? Uh, I forgot what we called it. It was some, they gave us leave because of what happened. It was like free 30 days of Yeah, gotcha. And Southwest Airlines or one of the airlines gave us like free round trip tickets. So like I flew to Nebraska to hang out with my buddy and then drive to California to hang out with my family and come back. So yeah, that was it. And we got back. I mean, they had us take paperwork from medical at some point when we got back that was uh, the old version of the PTSD, PTS stuff on the old scale. So like they had us take that. And I remember everybody took that. And then they said, you have to do some extra go to medical and talk yeah. to somebody stuff if you needed to. And the thing is that, much at that age as well, you know, 21 years ago, let's just wait for this ambulance there. Yeah, it's over there. <laughs> yeah, again, back to um, back to it. The ambos just passed. Yeah. Um, so, t- you know, 21 years ago, you knew being 20, you would have just looked at that PTSD crap and just gone, what's this fucking rubbish? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, I, like I, it, it didn't mean anything. You're just no, like, I just, no, whatever. I, I, answered, I answered all of it. Yeah, make, exactly. But I was just really truthful about it. Because at that point, I'm like, some of the guys were like, what if we do this and they and we get kicked out? I'm like, just but, answer it. Like, we're, yeah. we're sitting here. Who cares? Like, we don't have a boat. We're living in the barracks on the base. We have to muster twice a day. I go surfing every afternoon. Like, I don't care. Yeah. And at this point, like, I was drinking a lot, so I really didn't care. Yeah. I was yeah. like, nope, I'm, I'm drinking a lot, lot of crappy whiskey. And I'm, yeah. I don't care. Yeah. But I filled it all out. And eventually later in my career, like, when they're like, hey, here's all your stuff when you're retiring. They're like, oh, we need to talk to you about this for the VA. I'm like, okay. And it was all part of my stuff. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I got some problems with that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it sets the tone at the beginning for like bad stuff happened and then the rest of your military career is kind of set that way. Yeah. That, you know, especially at a young age and you're only in the, in the Navy for two years. Yeah. And then you're getting, you know, hit by a terrorist, terrorist attack, which is, you know, prior to uh, 9-11 as well. And then 9-11 kicks off and changes yeah. the, you know, alters the path of your career. Yeah. Every, every deployment for me with the Navy was on a ship going to the Middle East always VBSS, always, always something quirky, one quirky thing, every deployment, like on a frigate in the 2004 to six range, I'm sorry, no, three to four range. They're like, Hey, can you take a rib up the river and see how, you know, how shallow it can be? Can we take a frigate up to, to port in Iraq? And I'm like, we're going to what? And I'm just an E5. I don't, I'm not charging this, but I spent like eight hours in a storm trying to go as high as we could into the nag with a, with a rib boat and getting trapped on silt flats and then getting it off of that and all kinds of other crap. I'm like, yeah, this is going to be an interesting rest of my life because everything is all about this right now. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's crazy. So how many ships did you, uh, get posted to in the entire 20 years? It would have been the USS Cole was the first one. The second one would have been the USS Vela Gulf. Then I reenlisted. Then I was transferred to San Diego and I was on the frigate, the USS Jarrett. Then after the Jarrett, I was stationed in Okinawa for shore duty to do some compartmentalized stuff that I guess I'm still not allowed to talk about. Um, it was nerdy. Yeah. Was nerdy. Yeah. Um, then after that, back to San Diego to a DDG, the USS Benfold. Then after the Benfold, Hawaii, where I taught VBSS for three years. Best duty of my life, by the way. Shore duty. It was Hawaii, main island. Yeah. And it was VBSS. So it was 
every day was fun. Simunitions, teaching the kids how to do cool stuff. And then at the end of that, they were like, you can get stationed in Japan for your last couple of years or you can get stationed in Virginia for your last couple of years. I'm like, well, retiring from mainland America is way easier than retiring from Japan. Yeah. So I picked that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you just spent the last two years. The, Mitcher, the USS Mitcher. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And that was just an easy two years. No, no, that was, that was, what was it 2014? So it was four years because I retired in 18. Oh, four, yeah. First two years, deploy, we did workups, deployable. On that deployment, we got to work with elements of uh, Naval Special Warfare who came out to, you know, see what it's like to do stuff off boats. That was a really fun two weeks. They had a dog on the boat, too. So then after that, the ship went into getting fixed when we got home. So it was like a year of sitting in the yards, which is horrible because just everything's tore apart and it smells like crap and it's broken. And then the last year was just out processing stuff. And yeah. I think I had to go on one long two-month underway. We went to the war games they do in the U.K. I forgot what it's called. It's, it's, it's like RIMPAC, but it's not a fun version of RIMPAC. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, and then we did that, and then I came in. It was like, paperwork, paperwork, I'm getting out. What was your reasoning for getting out? Just that's 20 it? 20 years. I mean, they had, they had just upped it that guys in my rank could stay for 22 years. So I could have stayed for two more years, but I'm like, no, I'm good. Like, yeah. I, I did 20 years. This last year has been real irritating on like personal level as well as like just work levels. It wasn't, I was, I guess when you get long enough in the tooth, you realize if you're really unfulfilled, are you really, are you doing anything good while you're there? Or are you just going to end up being like a cancer and be malcontentish with people? So I was just like, I need to go. Yeah. Just kind of want to have, I don't know, I want to taste the freedom, I guess. <laughs> I That's it. Well, you know, 20 years is a long time to yeah. serve as well. It's not, 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 you know, it's not two years, it's 20 years. It's a long time of your yeah, life, yeah. half your Cause, life. Because some people are like, well, two more years, but I'm going to eat. Yeah. Like, I'm looking at the, That's I'm looking enough. at what's behind me. I'm like, it's 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you get out and then, um, uh, you're with the VA. Yeah. Doing the VA stuff. You, um, started doing all that. And I went to a couple of different entities they have to help you. And through faults of my own, like not paying attention to how to do paperwork correctly. And then also, just some of the places like, hey, we did we did your paperwork, but you got to do this or you got to go here. And me just being like, I have to work and actually pay to have a life. It uh, it just took forever. So it was a little bit of me, a little bit of the process. But once the process was over and like squared away and my paperwork got to all the right places, um, everything that happened with the last administration saying they're going to make stuff happen, it happened. Like paperwork squared away. I got all my back paid to the day and I got out. Uh, sorry, just to touch in, what, what, what administration was this? Well, I believe the last administration who was making the VA like actually do their job was the Trump administration. So 100%. Interesting. Yeah, so 100%. During that administration, like it wasn't like I didn't get any special treatment, not a special operator. I didn't have any of the extra care coalition or stuff they have. Just me doing some paperwork and going to the um, department, what was it, Disabled Veterans of America. Those guys helped out with my paperwork. Yeah, gotcha. But I got everything in there and got my back pay from the day I got out, got all my stuff squared away, had all my appointments done. Every appointment that was scheduled, if I had a work trip for my contracting job, I just called them ahead of time and they rescheduled everything. One time things got messed up to where everything on my system got goose egg. Like, you didn't go to these appointments, we're not going to give you anything. And I had to go and show them where I did go and where they were redone. Just someone maybe looked in the system and saw the first page that none of those appointments had gone to because yeah. someone didn't get rid of them. Yep. But that was the biggest, that was the biggest pain in the butt. It took like two weeks and it got totally arbitrated correctly. And they were like, so sorry, here's your letter. Here's all your stuff. By the way, you're good to go. Here's all your thing. Wow. Great. So I was like, that gave me a lot of breathing room. Yeah. So I'm fully retired and I'm a disabled veteran and yeah. I have a lot of once now, once I like I'm home, I can like take advantage of the things they have for us that are benefits. And they're really, really helpful. So I always tell guys like, just go do it. See yeah. what they tell you. Don't tell them stuff. Just see what they tell you. It's yeah. like, it's going to help you. It yeah. makes, it's given me breathing room to pick jobs I want versus I have to work this or I have to do that. 
or I don't have to work at all. It's like, yeah. what do I want to do? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. So now you're retired, but um, when you say retired, again, uh, before we start off this podcast, uh, we spoke about knives and yeah. you've got into forging, yeah, um, yeah. which is pretty cool. And you started that five, six years ago? Seven I years started ago? that, oh, wow. It was in, in Hawaii and it was around 2011-ish, 12-ish. Oh, a long time ago. Yep. My buddy Matt was doing it in Hawaii and I noticed he was doing his garage. Asked him a couple questions, not a big deal. Later on, Matt had some personal stuff go on. So he was at his work and he was doing it. And I'd go visit him and be like, hey, man, when you need anything, he's like, yeah, bring me like a six-pack of white monsters and bring me some <laughs> chew. And I'm like, the, the team guy liquid and meal of choice, apparently. And then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was uh, he's running ultra marathons. So that's why I went to go check on him because I was like, you're running like 40 and 50 miles a night every night. And I'm like, are you eating? Like, are you okay? No, I'm making knives. What? Wait, the thing you're doing in the garage? So I'd come over and hang out and check it out. And um, yeah, just it was really cool. And I would pester him, hey, make me a knife. One day he was like, go make your own knife leave me alone. I'm like, oh man. He's like, here, read this book first. Then I'll let you use my tools. Read the book, started pounding on some steel with him. It was super cool. Later on, about 2013, he was in a training accident. They lost him at sea during some OTB stuff in Hawaii. And uh, yeah, it was pretty traumatic for everybody. It sucked. A lot of dudes I knew that he knew didn't get knives that I knew he wanted to make knives for because he had like a list and he'd always talk about it at night. So I'm like, I'm going to make knives. I'm going to like make sure these guys, that was it. That was the whole thing was I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to get good enough to at least make a mat level knife. His knives are really nice too. Like for being a one year knife guy, they, they weren't, they weren't crappy. So I was like, I'm going to make, I'm going to make knives for these. That degenerated into, got a couple knives to guys. Other guys were like, Hey, I'll give you money for a knife. I'm like, no, they're like, take some money. Come on. I'm like, okay, well I can buy a new drill. Press. I can buy a new sander because that's expensive and I don't have money. Now it's, I make knives and people buy them. And I get to do a lot of charity work. So if someone buys a knife for me or a tomahawk or a bunch of stuff for me, I get to go and like buy new tools that make it quicker and easier for me to make it. Still hand forging with a hammer. And then I could do a lot of charity work where I can like make a knife for well, TBI charity, Gold Star Kids, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah, that's just what it is now. And now I kind of want to do that full time just on my own the way I'm doing it. Yeah. It's like not do other jobs anymore. Yeah, man. The, the, the knives are absolutely cool too. Like I thought, again, we've, you know, we spoke first time probably about two years ago on Instagram and since then, I've seen all your work, all your work that you put up, and some of those knives are incredible, absolutely yeah. incredible. And you know, you gifted me one, which was yeah. awesome. And again, I can't wait to use it. Like, on yeah, I, something. Can't wait. I, I want to see what you hunt with that in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's an alligator hunt, send it. you guys are yeah, allowed to do yeah, that. I want uh, to. Crocodile. No, I don't know. We can't. I, I, saw, I thought I saw a show on Discovery yeah, Channel where they like, um, oh, yeah. they just they catch them and move them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, what they do. Yeah, okay, they yeah. catch them. That's I'm, I'm not too keen on jumping in the water and trying to wrestle a crocodile. No, you. Well, I watch Swamp People, the American version, and they're like shooting alli- or crocodiles yeah. or alligators with 22s. I'm like, oh, don't look that hard. <laughs> yeah. So what's your what's the knife uh, making? What what are you called? Um, uh, Makai. Oh, Makai. Makai Melworks. That's it. So Makai is Hawaiian. I learned it in Hawaii, so it's Hawaiian for towards the sea. And I'm always trying to get in the water and go surf and go play on the water. So I was like, oh, that makes 100 percent sense. I'm gonna go with that. Yeah. And then. I was like, oh, I was going to call it Blade Works and all this other stuff. And a couple of friends were like, well, make, call it Metal Works because then, like, you know, you're probably going to make other stuff because yeah. you get bored. Yeah. So you'll make other things. And I have made other stuff out of metal now. And I got some uh, stuff coming in after this work trip that's like you can make spoons and ladles, like oh, old yeah, right. medieval-style shovels and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I can make sh- – I could, I could forge shovels. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, this makes sense now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and a lot of this steel that you're using comes from Navy ships. When I was first doing it, and a pile I have came from a bunch of scrap that I had from like the inside the ship, shipyard. Just it was just stuff everywhere. And they're like, throw this out, move it around. What is this? Why is this here? Go clean it up. The shipyard guys and clean. I'm like, okay. And I was learning, so I'm like, oh, a piece of metal. No one cares about it. Take it home, cut it into a square, beat it out, make a knife. 
and it's really cool. And I went through some old like Navy booklets on the steel and the alloys the Navy uses. I'm like, okay, so this metal isn't just like Home Depot weldable metal. Some of this is really good. Yeah. And then you can do simple stuff like put it against a grinder and get a spark test. If you get a lot of good sparks, it's probably high carbon. If you don't get a lot of sparks, it's not. Well, a lot of those knives that weren't high carbon became really nice letter openers they made for people. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm like, here you go. Or, you know, like a little pry bar or something. But yeah. just learn how to make stuff. Now I have leaf springs. I have demilled pieces of like machine guns that guys get me. Um, horse rasp, big horse files for their hooves that I make tomahawks out of. Yeah, I just pretty much, I like a lot of reclaimed steel, but I do buy some conventional commercial steel. So like the the... ADCRV2 stuff that's the high stainless carbon because if I do kitchen knife stuff for people I want it to be like a stainless steel yeah of course yeah but that yeah other than that like yours is a piece of a leaf spring off a truck yeah I think one of the dudes was like yeah it was off an F-150 or Tacoma I'm like that's so cool cool. man that's so cool yeah and uh, I did see a few weeks ago um, you had some steel from the World Trade Center yeah so the guys at 8th Order it's a charity that I work with they take reclaimed uniforms do nice button up shirts and that's what they sell and they give um part of the part of the profits go to charity and at t for tbi camps camp southern those guys someone through them hit them up and say hey i have steel from the new construction of the world trade center putting it up and i made a couple knives out of that and those went to charities then he said i have a chunk of the last i-beam they took out so i would say a little maybe 14 16 inches long four inches across and like a finger and a half thick of steel so i took that and cut it up and made two swords that they're auctioning off. And then the other third piece where I had made the second sword originally, but yep. then I messed it up. <laughs> I cut that into three separate pieces to make some nice knives. And one of those just went at a socket or a, an auction up in Chicago. One of them's going to go to the boot campaign. The other one I have to send to the eighth order guys to do something else. Yeah. With. And right now they're getting the swords appraised for something because they're going to take it somewhere where some highfalutin folk are going to uh, bid on it. That's super cool. And that's all going to go to help with a TBI and like veteran transition type camp. So I'm like, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, and, and that is the fact that they let cool. me do that because I'm like, that's like the one piece of steel that doesn't exist. Like that piece of steel is that piece of steel. That's it. Yeah, there might be other people who have steel from it and other stuff, but like if I mess this up, that's it. That's over. There's nothing going on. So yeah, that's hectic and super cool. Yeah, and uh, if uh, anyone out there is listening, where can they? Do you have a website? No, I just have the Instagram. Just the the Instagram. Works Instagram, and like they just DM me. Like I'm right now. This whole business model for this year is just make uh, 15 knives a month and then put them all for sale every two months and then take 10 or six slots of custom stuff for people. So that way people can get a knife and I'm not, I'm not one of, I'm not charging like an arm leg. It's not, I don't make a living. It just money goes back in the shop. So I can have more tools and more yeah, fun. I can yeah. take trips to go to trade shows and yeah. hang out with people and do yeah. podcasts. But yeah. like, yeah, no, like my knives go from 350 to 450, you know, like the one you had yeah. down to a, like an everyday carry yeah. knife. And I've made some little $200 knives that are like the little ones in the leather that I've put up on the page before. And then if it's custom thing, it just depends on what, what cool is, idea yeah. someone has. But yeah. I just try to tell people I'm going to temper what you're telling me with reality. Because everybody wants like the Braveheart sword. And so you're <laughs> telling them like, it's this many hours, it's this much steel, and it's going to cost you this much. And they're like, oh, okay, I don't want a Braveheart sword. What, what is the turnaround time for one of those? Like a, like if a- I was making your knife by itself... It would be a five-day process. Five days with with all the with all the cra- the crazy science of like you have to cook it for two hours. You gotta let it sit overnight. I let the handle cure on it for a day with the epoxy that goes on and everything. So like, basically, if I was doing a knife from start to finish, hammering it out that size of yours, yeah, five days by itself. That's the only thing I'm working on. Yeah, I do a bunch of knives at a time. So if it like I said, the couple of customs, I'm gonna go with like three months. Like if you day one, ninety days later, you'll have your knife. Yeah, the other ones that I'm just working on to like 
hey, this is what I have for sale if you guys want to buy them. I'm just going to hammer on those. And when they're all done, every two months, put out like 30 knives. Yeah. Yeah. That is super cool. So, yeah, if anyone's listening, head to his Instagram, which is uh, Mackay Metalworks. Mackay Metalworks. Metalworks. Um, we'll get, we'll, um, we'll tag him in on um, the social media posts anyway and the, and the website. Um, well, mate, we've been talking good hour, mate, and it's yeah. been awesome. Yeah. It's awesome to finally, you know, meet you in person yeah. rather than over social, like pen pals, really. Yeah. And, uh, Mate, it's been a great chat, especially, um, you know, you telling your story about the USS uh, Cole, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, one of those turning points in history, especially for the US Navy, because they learn a lot from just yeah, that one incident, lot, you know. It baselined a lot of things from boot camp and damage control and security stuff, and then how the Navy does security. Like, everything comes from somewhere. That's and, it. Like, I'm not proud that I did my best when I was there, but, like, it's one of those things also where you sometimes think about, like, it could have just not happened. That would have been cool, too. So it's one of those things where when you talk about it, you just really go through all the feelings. Yeah, you talk that's, about it, that's you it. About you know, it. it's shit that it did happen, but it is good because it, it did yeah. happen because now it's taught, you know, different security procedures and policies and, yeah. you know, stopping those little tugboats just from rolling up, you know, on yeah. the side of, Yeah, you know, like, knock on wood, like. We haven't had that type of in a game. Exactly. And that, obviously, because of that USS yeah. Cole, it would have, you know, changed a lot of thought process on um, security. But, uh, mate, again, thanks for uh, giving me your time and meet me here in uh, Washington, D.C., yeah, no which problem. is pretty cool. We're only, like, you know, just outside of uh, Arlington um, and, uh, you know, down the road from uh, Sleepy Joe's house. So. <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> Which uh, is pretty that's cool. A whole nother podcast, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole yeah. other podcast. That's a whole other podcast. I think uh, we'll just leave that one because it might destroy <laughs> our businesses. <laughs> um, no, but everybody who buys my knives likes to eat meat and stuff, so I think I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you move into Texas, you might be all right. I know that'd be so cool. Yeah, but uh, mate, again, appreciate you and uh, yeah, good luck, mate. Good luck yeah. in the future, and I'll, I'll definitely. Uh, push your knives in australia i know for a fact there's a couple of other guys that i know are friends of mine that do follow you on instagram and i'm sure that, you know oh yeah that they'll love uh, stuff like that no that'd be cool. people love that stuff in australia so yeah i'll definitely uh put that up on our social medias and my personal stuff and um yeah I'll definitely again work on a collaboration for oh i'm into it knives and shirts and whatever yeah. Yeah, those but, shirts um, are cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to wear those when I'm doing some some work and some other stuff. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Yeah. No, again, appreciate. It. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, bro. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the season campaigner pour over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour over filter bags, you've got some merchandise, And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.